This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Bunny Foodie Adventures, and the author is Kathleen Morrissey, and Kathleen joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kathleen. Hi. Great to have you with us. Uh, really a cute book with a great moral behind the whole story and about these two young bunny families. And as you write about it, you say two young bunnies experience frightening experiences that teach them to listen and pay attention to the rules and not go off without permission. That just happened to us at the park. <laughs> you know, you say to your grandchild, stay yeah. right by us. And before you know it, you know, they're, they're off somewhere. And that's just something you got to continually remind. And great to have a little story to teach that. Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't want people getting lost. And, and a fun adventure should include uh, fun and safety. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Kathleen, and how this story came about. Well, uh, I had my grandson visiting, and in this, it was a year ago, last summer, and in the backyard we had a real bunny in the backyard, and he exclaimed that this is first, his first time ever seeing a real bunny, you know, in real life, in the, just in our backyard. And uh, after that happened, he had gone home. My husband and I were sitting out having, uh, you know, a nice evening, enjoying the evening, and here comes this little bunny. And we look at watching the bunny, and then our neighbor's cat decides that he wants to play with the bunny. <laughs> and he packs that bunny, and he it basically it pretty much happened where that poor little bunny was pretty beaten by this cat. We were trying to protect, and my husband was chasing the cat away, and I'm trying to chase the bunny away, and it, that's how I came up with this story. It just came to me as a, <laughs> well, this is a good little story. <laughs> Yes, uh, don't wander into places you shouldn't be. That's exactly right. That's exactly You need to go home, little bunny, yeah. not be in the backyard with yeah, the yeah. cat. Yeah, well, so, I mean, there's a, it's, a, it's a moral that continues throughout the story. Yes, it does. It, yeah, it happens again to the sister and a friend, and they go off on their own little adventure, and they, too, experience some dangers and, uh, and really under, come to understand that they need to uh, check with mom and dad, check with the family, let somebody know where you're going, and let's be safe. Well, first of all, tell us the two different families. Uh, give us the, the list of characters in both families. Well, we've got um, Cotton, and we've got Bobbin, and, and uh, we've, we've got Springer. Springer and his friends and Mommy Rabina and Daddy Roofer and uh, they're all going to go off and have get their meals together out in the farm and uh, going off on those fields together, as many as there are, and the field being big and large and they needed to stay together in order to not get lost and avoid all so the are and the... enjoy. Oh, go ahead. No, who are the bunnies who... Together. Who are the bunnies who are, have the adventure spirit that want to do things their way? 
Springer, for one, <laughs> in the first portion of the story, and then Cotton in the other. She's the one that gets, uh, they get off, straying off to, without asking permission or letting anybody know. Now, what kind of dangers do they face? Well, for poor Springer, he ends up finding that uh, he's uh, been paying, not paying attention when the family was moving on, and he is uh, encounters uh, a tinkle jingle sound, a big the collar of a big black dog, and so he's frightened and he wants to get back with his family. He doesn't want to be around that dog. And then with Cotton, she uh, she and her friends decide to go off to this special little place, a house that has a just marvelous-looking vegetable patch, and encounters uh, some adventures with a sprinkler and a cat. (laughs) What made you choose the locations in the story? Well, I uh, chose the locations simply because I figured that that would be pretty natural for them to want to go looking for food, foraging for food, and everybody loves a farm. I love to go visit farms, and so that I just placed them in the farm area and uh, and around homes with vegetables. I grew up with friends and neighbors and family growing our own little vegetable patches and catching, you know, seeing that little bunnies would come and other little animals come and trying to rob from the garden, <laughs> enjoy the fruits of the <laughs> of the garden. Right, <laughs> right. Illustrations are just great. The illustrations are important. They're so very important. I uh, I created these stories. Uh, this is my second, and I just did a third, with the idea they are longer stories. They are chapter stories. And I, as a young child, I didn't think I liked to read. And I thought I didn't like to read because it was black and white and words, and the chapter stories just it didn't didn't click for me at a very young age. Third, around third grade, I was having difficulty appreciating reading. So then I uh, thought, well, why don't I do stories that are longer but keep the pictures, give them pictures so that comprehension is maybe easier if they have pictures for a little bit longer, a longer story with pictures so that somebody that is in the third grade or uh, around that age doesn't think that they enjoy reading yet may find that they're understanding what the words are saying because the pictures are helping them comprehend, and now I like to read. And that's kind of would be a real wish or goal for me is to help uh, young readers really realize their potential and their enjoyment of reading. Who's the very special helper, the surprise helper? The surprise helper in the story. The surprise helper yes. is... Uh, yeah, the surprise helper is <laughs> the, the well, certainly the lady, the little girl is going to surprise and help the girl save the girl Cotton and her bunny friends from being eaten by the cat. She shows up and she assists them in getting away. Well, you have a as you've already mentioned this importance of following the rules the. System, right? The old-fashioned buddy system. The old-fashioned buddy system, you betcha. Staying together and uh, listening to one mom and dad say, we've got to all pay attention and stay together because sometimes 
as you say, you go to a park or you go to a, a theme park or a zoo or something, and it's, it, everything is so exciting, and it's sometimes hard to pay attention to the fact that, oh, they're moving on now, or I'm by myself. So we want to make sure that uh, we can enjoy all that, hopefully, and the stories will bring to life the fact that we need to pay attention sometimes at, to be safe. So we have a just uh, animals that everybody loves, children love, little bunnies, everybody loves bunnies, and they have an adventure, and there's some scary moments, some drama in it, and of course, it has a happy ending. So what more could you want in a children's story? That's true. That's so very, very, very true. Well, congratulations, Kathleen. Uh, we appreciate talking to you about Bunny Foodie Adventures Kathleen Morrissey is the author with great illustrations. Uh, Kathleen, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through Author House, Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon, and they're also available in e-books. All my books are also available in the e-digital reader books. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Why is the Soft Side the Hardest Part? Reflections of an Executive Philosopher and the author is William D. Mayo. And Bill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bill. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, 
I love that you describe yourself as an executive philosopher. I, I really believe you are because you're taking a whole different slant on leadership and management, the softer side, meaning people. You can only have a business with people, and there are people skills to leadership that most managers feel intimidating, but you're trying to help us understand not only the importance of it, but to how to do it. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Um, you know, I've known many managers who were successful uh, by being hard-nosed, but my whole point is that they could have imposed a lot less stress on others and a lot less stress on themselves if they just learned how to navigate the soft side. And you're right, a lot of managers confide that the soft side or the people skills side of business is the most intimidating. And you know, a lot of that, I believe, is because we teach a pervasive philosophy of management control. People don't want to be controlled. They want to be led. And unfortunately, uh, it's just a whole lot easier to set rigorous metrics and follow rigorous processes and, uh, and tighten the, the strings on everyone, uh, when in reality, what provides the best discretionary effort is when you liberate and lead people as opposed to attempt to control them. So, yeah, you're right. You set the stage very well with that lead comment. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Bill, your background, your, your management and leadership experience. Well, I, uh, I'm a central Illinois boy, Steve, and I, I grew up in cornfields, but I decided to, to uh, see the world and join the Navy. So I went to the United States Naval Academy in 1970 and graduated in 74 with a degree in oceanography, of all things, and uh, was serving on ships and uh, uh, serving in the military at Recruit Training Command in Great Lakes and learned a lot about leadership and management. In, in that role, and when I resigned my commission back in 1979, I decided to defy the author, Thomas Wolfe, and try to come home, so I came home to central Illinois, and in those days, um, the big game in town was Caterpillar. Of course, if I had been a professor, there were a number of universities. If I had been a doctor, there's a great medical complex here, but I was an oceanography major, and I figured, well, that's relevant to the construction equipment business. I'll always be in deep water, so I joined Caterpillar back in 1979. <laughs> and my experience with CAT was, uh, it was global. I, I lived overseas for a while. I had a number of field-based marketing positions, and then grew through supervisory and division and department and general manager positions, and finally was elected an officer of the company in 2005, a position I held until I retired in 2008. When you talk about the softer side, it sounds kind of like a touchy-feely kind of concept. Now, how do you do that and at the same time, you know, display strong discipline? Some people might say you're leading too much with your heart. How can you be strong in discipline and with clear expectations and accountability and even sometimes calling people on the carpet with some harsh messages. How do you combine all of that? You know, I, I liken it to our children. Um, you have a number of children. I have five children. And, and when you discipline your kids, you don't stop loving them. You give them firm, accountable uh, expectations. 
and you give them a little rope so that they can, uh, you know, develop who they are as individuals, but you love them up unconditionally. And uh, I use the credo of strive to treat people like dogs, which sounds silly, but if you think about it, if you have a pet, specifically a dog, what do you do with it? You play with it, you give it clear expectations, and you give it unconditional love and acceptance. Let's say, for example, that you leave for work and you tell the dog, now don't do a mess on the carpet, don't jump on the bed, don't chew on the furniture or chew on the curtains, and you go to work and you come home at the end of the day and the dog has met all those expectations, what do you do? You provide genuine affection and praise, and uh, you're just really, really happy with the performance of the animal. Now, let's say you come home and that animal has done its mess or chewed on the furniture or jumped on the bed or chewed on the curtains. What do you do? You get right in its face and you say, I told you not to do that. And you're pretty clear and crisp in your discipline. But what happens? The dog looks up at you with those big brown eyes and you say, ah, come on over here. And you love it up unconditionally. And, and as I like to say, unless you love your people unconditionally, you'll never hear the truth again. They'll tell you what you want to hear as opposed to the truth that you need to hear. As far as how, I have a chapter in the book called Cruel to be Kind. I, I use song titles for every one of my chapters. And, and it's all about confronting failure and poor performance. And when you strive to treat people like dogs, you don't save up these disappointments for their annual performance review. You don't ruin their little doggy career by, uh, you know, saying bad things about them at a succession planning meeting. You confront it immediately and with truth but with care. And I found that people respond to that truth very positively because at the end of the day, I don't believe people come to work to do a bad job. They come to work to do their best. They want to feel appreciated for the work that they do. They want to uh, know how their contribution, you know, enables the key objectives and the goals of the organization. And the truth is what helps you align their performance with expectations. And, yeah, sometimes it can be tough to confront that issue. But the misconception is that, you know, loving people or soft skills or are doing a big group hug and holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It's not that at all. It, it's really difficult because you have to be authentic and you have to confront performance issues straight away. So this soft side leadership is not soft. It's more what we probably uh, hear most often is a tough love kind of a, an approach to leadership. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, just be... I'm sorry I have a phone ringing, but just because, uh, you know, I talk about soft skills, they're only soft because human beings are emotional flesh and blood. They're, they're not assets. And uh, so it's soft in the sense that you're not managing people like you manage an asset. You know, Steve, if you look up the words, uh, people are our most important asset, if you do a Google search on that, you're going to find something like 21 million hits of companies that actually boast that phrase, people are our most important asset. But I'll ask you, what do you do with an asset in business? You depreciate it, you write it off over time, you consume it, 
and you discard it. I don't know about you, but I'd not want to work for a company that says people are, are our most important, appreciable, consumed, and written off over time resource. What I'd rather do is work for a company that understands I'm an emotional, flesh and blood human being with needs and have someone that's tuned into those with genuine care. Uh, but it's not soft. It, it is it is soft in the sense that you're dealing with the human heart and the human mind, and not a hard asset. But it is it is not easy. It is challenging to be authentic in that regard. So as you write, true leadership is about serving. It's not about being in control. That's a whole different, obviously, a very different viewpoint of being at the head of a company or the head of a department, serving, serving those people, helping them become their very best. That's what I'm hearing you say. Well, you know, I admire President Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. He actually said, to lead, you must first serve. And uh, I, I totally agree with that. I actually think that capitalism uh, has lost its way a little bit because it focuses too much on the accumulation of, of money when, in fact, capitalism was originally based on service, not greed. And, you know, to the degree, well, there's an old guy, I think he was one of the founding members of Cummins Engine Company, as a matter of fact, and his name was J. Irwin Miller. And he actually has a quote that I used to say in business, and people would arch their eyebrows and, and again, cast that slur that I'm a philosopher at me, but I never minded. I actually kind of enjoyed it. But J. Irwin Miller's quote says that we're not in business to make money. We're in business to serve the customer. And to the degree we do that better than competition, the customer rewards us with his dollars. And to the degree we run an efficient operation, we reward ourselves with profit. It puts the priorities first on service and then on running an efficient operation, which has the result of profit. It doesn't put profit first. Sort of like living and breathing. You don't wake up to breathe, but you pretty well have to breathe in order to wake up. I think service comes first. The profits and the operational efficiencies follow. And you're taking this to another level, too, where you say the purpose of leadership is to build the next generation of leaders. So you're trying to set a new standard. Well, it's not so new. I mean, I actually borrowed that from uh, Ralph Nader, who said the premise or the purpose of leadership is to build the next generation of leaders, not more followers. I mean, when you think about liberating people to provide their best discretionary effort, what does that do? That allows people to grow and flex their intellectual curiosity, flex their intellectual muscle, provide their discretionary effort, and voila, yes, someone that has really developed into a, a resource for the business that can be grown and can be groomed. Um, but I would hate to just put the person who best mitigates and manages and controls risk as a leader because... The higher up you go, even if you look at succession planning for large companies like, like a Caterpillar, um, the things that they, they measure, yes, of course they measure results. GE measures results too. But GE has a model that says not only what was achieved, but how it was achieved, the conformance to institutional values. And I would submit to you, Steve, those are soft side skills. I heard one person say a, a leader, a, a business 
CEO, we all know the big strong title of CEO, President and CEO. He said, I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer. I, I love that. That kind of fits right in with what you're saying. It does, uh, but you don't encourage poor performance. It goes back to your point initially is that you still have to confront performance issues. You still have to be clear on expectations, but align those people with it and then give them the latitude to learn and and, and the opportunity to, to put their discretionary effort forward and get out of their way. Um, I really think that's the key to unleashing human potential. Now, you officially retired in 2008, like you told us, but you don't call it retirement. I love how you describe this. Tell us about this this concept of of reallocation. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I, I actually borrowed that as well from a, a dear friend of mine who's a physician, and when he retired from his medical practice, he told me that he wasn't really retiring. <clears throat> he was reallocating, and I asked him why, and he said... Uh, Retiring, if you look it up in Webster's, it says to retreat, shrink, or quit. And if you look up reallocate, it means to set aside for a special purpose. So I appropriated that for my own philosophy. I reallocated. I, I teach leadership at a small Midwestern college on a part-time basis. I'm on a number of boards. I do some community service work, and I uh, enjoy my 13 grandchildren and my children. And, yeah, I have some time for recreation, too. but. I really think that uh, in this phase of life, we should be thinking about giving back. So I reallocated for a number of special purposes, and, and I would hate to, I would rue the day that I would actually retire. Well, here's some of the titles of your chapters, as you already told us, song titles, famous ones, uh, some of them uh, uh, just familiar, uh, but we got to get out of this place, cruel to be kind, elusive butterfly, can't buy me love. Who'll stop the rain? And why don't we just kind of uh, close our discussion? What's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> well, uh, what's it all about, Alfie? Is the last chapter prior to the epilogue, and it really is a call to action for love and leadership, and finding your purpose and passion to lead. Uh, leadership is not about control. Uh, it is. It is about liberating people. And I, I go into the concept of loving people. Again, I mentioned prior that uh, unless you love your people, you'll never hear the truth again. And, uh, again, that, that is a philosophy, not necessarily some soft, gooey thing. So what's it all about? It's about authenticity. It's about service. It's about love. And, you know, you really can't be authentic unless you know what you stand for. The old saying, you'll fall for anything uh, if you don't stand for something. And I advocate um, personal credos, uh, knowing your personal values. In my course, I require each student to, through their life experience, it may be dramatic life experience, it, it may be very non-dramatic, but people, when they really reflect, can, can look at moments of truth that have shaped their values. And I advocate writing those values down, holding them uh, yourself accountable to your team by sharing those values. And I also point out one thing, Steve. You know, we're all flawed human beings. 
And I'm sure that I have disappointed people in my leadership. I know I have, and others have disappointed me. But I always say, find something worthy to emulate about every leader you've ever worked for and find something to forgive. And forgive is an operative word because, as I say, we are all flawed. But what it's all about is service, authenticity, love, and uh, and the soft side people skills will for those motivated by the bottom line, I would argue this is the most important aspect of achieving sustainable results. You can get results for a short burst of time with compliance and directives and policies and procedures, but if you want sustainable results over the long haul, you're going to need to navigate the waters of the soft side. And I hope that this book uh, lends itself to, to people doing that sort of reflection and, and helping them be more authentic in the business place. We've been listening to William D. Mayo. He is the author of his book, Why is the Soft Side the Hardest Part? Reflections of an Executive Philosopher. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, Steve, you can get it a number of ways. Uh, you can get it through Author House and their website. I have a personal website, www.williamdmayobooks.com, and also through the normal channels of number of online bookstores, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Powell, a number of bookstores like that. So readily available. Thank you so much, Bill, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I enjoy it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready to laugh along with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopreet. Friday evenings at 6, 5 central on Togedet.com. This is a truly realistic, no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is method that will have you laughing and crying, surviving while struggling, and hammering away at the hardships as you travel through the greatest journey of your life. Get empowered by joining thousands of other parents who have also decided to take a leap of faith into a double career with longer hours and half the pay simply because of the love they have for their children. Together, we are rebuilding a new economy that will support us rather than enslave us. Never again will we have to choose between raising our children and earning to provide for them. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. For more on Allie and her success, check out her website, OurMilkMoney.com. So come get empowered with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopreet, Friday afternoons at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen, Author Talk, 
and Author House Publications. This is J. Douglas Barker. And we're here with author Wim Wistera to discuss his book, The Digital Turn, How the Internet Transforms Our Existence. The book cover reads like this. The Digital Turn is a must-have for anyone who uses the Internet. It explains how the ever-growing flood of digital media affects our understanding of the world. The book analyzes the world of Twitter, Apple, Facebook, and Google and describes how our digitally enhanced biotrope alters our behaviors, social interactions, the economy, and culture as a whole. Wim, tell us this. How would you classify this book? Is this a, an educational book? It's nonfiction, obviously. How would you describe it? Yes, it's a nonfiction book. It's not an educational book, uh, although it can be very valuable in education. I think it would be useful for anyone who frequents the Internet or uses a smartphone to have a read here uh, because there's much confusion about all these modern technologies, these media technologies. And what I do in my book is trying to connect all kinds of ideas linked together with these media and uh, provide a kind of overview what the significance and impact of these media is. Today we're visiting with you from your home office in the Netherlands. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Well, I write a lot for my work. I'm uh, working as a professor at a university, a professor in digital media. And, um, well, maybe my background is a bit uh, uh, diverse. Originally, I'm a physicist. I worked as a teacher in mathematics and physics and even astronomy and computer science. And at a certain moment, I was getting interested in media, television, so I was a producer and director for TV and made documentaries in the 80s, that is quite some time ago, and gradually I uh, turned to uh, research in, in media at the university and became a professor, and now I'm working on gaming, web-based learning, all kinds of educational applications and methods. And this book is more like, um, well, let's say, um, a side product of my work and not emphasizing, emphasizing education very much, but uh, writing about the impact of media in everyday life. Wim, tell us about your motivation. What gave you the desire to write this book? Well, first of all, uh, I think it's not exaggerated to say that we're living in a breathtaking time. Like we have this flood of digital media and the impact and disruptive change uh, that comes through these media is, uh, is enormous. Uh, so not only at the individual level, but also for society at large. And it's very difficult to establish a coherent idea about the impact and the role of these new virtual spaces and so on, and the role of these particular media on the way we live. So there's a lot of confusion about uh, these media and my aim was to connect all kinds of ideas and come up with a kind of explanation uh, for providing insight in the way these media work and the way these media change our, I use the word biotope, that's our, let's say, material biotope. and cultural environment. Uh, we change our, our environment with these tools and uh, this is not generally perceived so consciously by people. So it's really good to, uh, to read about this and to understand what is happening 
over the last 20, 30 years, and especially the last decennium, we saw a lot of changes with the internet coming up and having smartphones and tablets and so on. So this is really kind of a revolution completely changing the world at the moment. Does your book have any step-by-step suggestions or recommendations for this digital age? Uh, well, that would be a bit too educational, I think. Uh, okay. Yes, I provide some insights and guidelines. The general message is actually don't let yourself confuse too much. Try to understand what these media do with your thoughts. It's uh, uh, say These are cognitive tools that influence the way you operate, think, uh, live, work, and so on. And you should be aware of the limitations uh, of the uh, advantages. One of the careful issues is, of course, let's say, is that the right word? One of the, the yes. uh, subtle issues is that uh, when we use more of these media, like uh, smartphones and so on, our perception of the world gets more indirect. And when we have a more indirect perception of the world, we may, uh, we are likely to develop a kind of detached worldview, sitting behind your happening. desk. Yeah, pushing the buttons. You can think of these drone pilots. Uh, There's an extreme example of people sitting in a remote location, pressing buttons and then doing all kinds of stuff, not really knowing what the impact of their actions are. They, of course, this is only an example, but this is what we're doing also with our smartphones, pressing buttons and not knowing exactly what is happening with the data, what the impact of our actions will be, and how we change by this ourselves. And altogether, this provides a complete change of the way we live, a complete change of the way we perceive the world and the way we understand the world. This is really kind of a bit of philosophical level, I would say. Um, but the book itself is not that difficult uh, because it uses a lot of examples about Facebook and Twitter and uh, the drone example, of course. I spent a few lines on that also. And it makes clear what phenomena are really uh, can be helpful to explain to understand what is happening at the moment in the last few 10 years especially. So the digital turn really deals with the emotional de- detachment that is taking place because of our obsession with items and not people and not the emotional level that we connect with in the past. Yeah, well, the emotional thing is one thing, but it is not just the emotion. It's also the cognition. Let me let me start to explain from another angle. So uh, the human brain is about 100 years old, 100,000 years old, sorry. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is yes. the, the lifetime of, uh, of the modern man. Uh, but we still have these ancient brains, 100,000 years old. We are made to live on the savanna and be uh, hunters and collectors. Um, but gradually we developed all kinds of cognitive tools like writing and printing and TV. And lately we have the internet and smartphones. Uh, so we managed to change the world, the world we were living in. We are not chasing on the... Uh, on the savanna anymore. We're sitting behind our decks and watching it, watching screens and pressing buttons. Now, this latter part happened in, let's say, 10, 20, or 30 years. So the microcomputer is 1980. So let's say we have 30 years 
of uh, revolution as compared with 100,000 years of biological ev evolution. So the pace of technology change is so incredibly high over the last 30 years as compared with 100,000 years that you may wonder, can we cope with our brain? Does our brain, is our brain capable of coping with these changes? And one of the recommendations I would do is, or well, it's not a recommendation, it's kind of logical conclusion. Uh, yes, what we have to, we must make sure that we are, that we remain in control of the media that we use rather than that we are controlled by the media. So it's very important to know what happens with these media, how we are influenced, how we can influence the world with these media, and uh, give a lot of examples about this. So my recommendation is be smart, be media literate, understand what happens at the moment, and how your cognitive system, so not only the emotional part, but also your way of thinking is influenced and also helped partly, uh, by these uh, new technologies. You have over 300 pages in your book. I am curious who you think this book would appeal to. Is it complicated to read your book, or is it conversational in its style? Yeah, well, it's impressive, 300 pages, but it's not a complex book. Uh, I address a wide audience, and it is made up of uh, small sections you could read pretty well in an independent way. So what I do often is to read a few pages and then before going to sleep, I read something in bed and then I go to sleep. Uh, you can read in the, in a, in a train for, for 10 minutes. So there is an overall connection between the parts, but the subsections are more or less self-contained and they are illustrated with a lot of examples from the world of Facebook, Google, Apple, and all these uh, media companies that do so well at the moment. Uh, so it uh, provides quite some insights about what is happening with some very concrete examples. And how long did it take you to write this book? Well, so writing, I think, was uh, a bit in the weekend, let's say maybe one year or half a year. I think it will be one year writing in the weekend and evening a bit on the side of my work. But I had quite some uh, materials available from presentations and from blogs that I wrote. So I had quite some material there already. And of course, I write a lot of scientific papers for my work and do a bit of presentation and lecture, lecturing also. So uh, yeah, it was quite some work to compose the whole stuff together to, to, to make, a, make a book out of this. But I really felt this was uh, needed because I couldn't find a book like this myself. There are many books about media. Uh, a lot of these books are very interesting, but very practical also in the sense that they are focusing on operational skills like how to make a website, how to create a video. And my book is more about uh, not focusing on the technologies itself, but more like, uh, what does it mean? How do we think? What is, how do we get smart, uh, collect knowledge? What is knowledge? Uh, more the, the conceptual side uh, that underlies all these media. So I'm not focusing on the operational part. It's not a technical uh, book either. It's, it's a bit reflective. It's providing practical examples and still having a bit of a philosophical load also. 
it is about existence. Who are we? And we are changing ourselves. We are creating a kind of new human species without really being aware of it. So we should be aware about what is happening. This is what I mean. We are not running on the savannah anymore. We are cognitive beings, and our cognition is highly supported by all these tools that we have developed. So we are really changing, and this uh, this marks my anxiety that we, well, not anxiety, but, uh, that, well, yeah, we should really be careful not to be controlled by the media, but be in control ourselves. In introducing this book, The Digital Turn, to someone who doesn't know you or know of your background, how would you introduce it? Yeah, I think you read out an introduction uh, from the, at the very start, like, a uh, uh, of this interview, uh, I would introduce it like uh, it's it's a practical, informative guide of how to live in the let's say 21st century in a, in, a, in a mediated world where more and more online spaces are there. We are uh, also where where we are uh, present and acting. So um, yeah, well the key words are media literacy being aware of uh, the changing human species, um, knowing about the mechanisms that underlie um, uh, digital media and the impact for economy, there's a chapter on economy, the impact on education, there's a chapter about the impact on education, uh, the impact on society in a more wider scope, that is about social media, for instance. Uh, so there are all kinds of aspects um, covered in this book. That is the kind of umbrella I'm offering. What you're describing sounds like an interesting and informative read, one that will tie up a lot of loose ends for folks that are trying to understand the digital communication age. Wim, do you have any other books that our listeners might want to get a copy of, or are you working on maybe something new? Actually not. I wrote some books uh, uh, in the past in Dutch, uh, but uh, I have no plans for future books at the moment. Today we've been visiting with author Wim Wistera to discuss his book, The Digital Turn, How the Internet Transforms Our Existence. Thank you, Wim, for visiting with us today. How can we obtain your book? Well, the book is available on all kinds of uh, online bookseller sites like Amazon and uh, Author House, who is the original publisher. Um, you can read something about the book on the site, thedigitalturn.co.uk. It's a UK uh, domain name, but it's hosted by myself, also accessible from the States and other places. It would be. So have a look at the site, thedigitalturn.co.uk. Thank you, Wim. I appreciate your visiting with us today. Thank you for working through a couple of technical issues we've had to uh, get this information out to the listeners today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. For Steve Jorgensen and Author House Publications, this is J. Douglas Barker.